Well, after a little break, turn, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 32. <coughs> Genesis 32 this morning. As we get into this uh, latter part of the book of Genesis, the end of uh, the story of Jacob and the Joseph story beginning in chapter 37, I suspect we'll find ourselves taking larger bites of the text each week just because of the nature of uh, the story that's being told. <clears throat> so today, Genesis 32. What accounts for greatness? What accounts for greatness? Is it just ambition, drive, the will to win? Is that what makes us great? Is it genius or raw talent? Perhaps it's just dumb luck, being in the right place at the right time. Well, the truth is, greatness almost never comes the way we expect it. The road to greatness is almost never what we thought it would be. And so we will see in Genesis 32, as we return to the account of the making of a great patriarch, our forefather, Jacob. Well, it's a lengthy passage, but let me just read. It's familiar to you. It's a familiar story. Let me read the entire chapter. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. And the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives and I will make you prosper. I'm not worthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself and said to his servants go ahead of me 
and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? Who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all of the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when he meets you. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed forward of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me, go, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. That's a long story. It's a familiar story to many of you, perhaps. But there are at least two lessons that I want us to learn from this text. Probably many other things we could learn, but let's think about two things. The first is this. That fear will drive you to your knees. Fear will drive you to your knees. In our culture, we toy with fear. Hollywood produces terrifying thrillers and we flock to theaters and pay our money to be scared to death. Or we go to an amusement park and we pay good money to get on a ride that makes us scream with fright. For us, fear is often a form of entertainment. But recently, we Americans have tasted real fear, life and death fear. And it is truly terrifying, isn't it? It's one thing to know there are evil people in the world. It's quite another to know that they are bent on killing you if there's any way possible. That fear has literally driven us to our knees. In our text, Jacob faces real fear. He is consumed by fear of his brother Esau. You remember the story. Jacob stole Esau's blessing by impersonating Esau and going into his poor blind father who didn't catch on and gave him the blessing intended for his brother. In response to that, Esau had sworn that he was going to kill Jacob 
the first chance he got as soon as his father was gone. Jacob fled for his life to his uncle Laban's house. Now Jacob is returning to the land of Canaan, and as he returns, the closer he gets, the more he remembers this threat that Esau made, the last thing he probably heard from Esau, uh, that, that he was going to kill him. And the more he thinks about it, the closer he gets, the more it terrifies him. For you see, what Jacob is dealing with is a guilty fear, which will drive him to his knees. As Jacob is about to re-enter the land of his fathers, he sends word to Esau, hoping that perhaps time has mellowed him, that perhaps he has softened his vengeful anger. But the word that his messengers bring back to him is not that encouraging. Esau is on his way to meet him, but he has 400 men with him, a small army. Now, Jacob doesn't really know Esau's intentions, but he has, certainly has reason to expect the worst. And so in this first part of the chapter, we see Jacob's guilty fear begin to drive him down, drive him to despair. In verse 7 and 8, let me read it again. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may, be, may, may escape. What a terrible prospect to even think about. But here's Jacob dividing his family up, dividing his wives and children and his possessions into two groups, uh, perhaps sacrificing the one group to save the other group. Now, Jacob actually got that idea from the fact that when he made camp back in verses 1 and 2, he saw that there was a camp of heavenly hosts, the angels of the Lord here. And so he had named the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now, you would think that that would have been a great comfort to him, but in fact, there's no comfort for him at all in the presence of God's angels, for his guilty conscience is driving him to his knees. His guilty conscience can see only the fearful prospects. He is scared to death. And so he divides his family up in hopes preserve, preserving some of them. And then finally we read that he prays. His fear literally drove him to his knees. That's interesting with all the things that we've read about Jacob in the previous chapters. This is the first time in all of the account that we have any record of Jacob praying. But at least he prays now, his time of trouble. And frankly, it's a pretty good prayer that he prays. He starts out by acknowledging that it's the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father uh, Isaac who had sent him back to this land. He confessed his unworthiness for all the blessings that he's received. And he prayed that God would save him, he even prayed for his wives and children. He based his prayers, prayers on uh, God's promises. Now all that sounds pretty good. Some important things he didn't pray. He didn't ever call God my God. He didn't ever address him as if he was somebody he knew personally. It was always the God of his grandfather. He never really addressed his sin against Esau. He kind of acted as if that were not a factor in all of this terror that had struck his heart. He never asked God what he ought to do. He had his plans all made. He didn't bother to ask God. But nonetheless, he did pray here. But though he was driven to his knees, it still didn't calm his fears. John Calvin comments, all this should have built Jacob's confidence. But his guilt 
and fear completely controlled him at this point. And so Jacob decided to do something else. Not, would he, not only would, just he divide his, would he just divide his camp so that some of them might, pres, might, uh, uh, be, might survive, and not only would he cry out to the Lord, though it brought him no peace, he decided he would uh, get on his knees, so to speak, before Esau. He would humble himself before Esau. And so Jacob, in this uh, grandiose scheme that we read, it takes several verses here, Jacob calls one of his servants and he puts him in charge of a flock of 200 goats. Sizable flock, I suspect. And he sends him on ahead to go to Esau. And as he sent him, he gave that servant careful instructions concerning what he was to say to Esau when he saw him. We read it in verse 18. Say to him, these flocks belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift to my Lord Esau. Jacob's coming behind me. He'll give him a gift. He will will bow before Esau, so to speak. And then he thought, well, what if 200 goats aren't enough? I better send a little more. And so he gets another servant. He says, take 20 male goats and, and, and follow along a ways back just in case the 200 female goats aren't enough. And he gave that servant the same instructions to say the same thing. And then he thought, what, what if the 20 male goats aren't enough either? And so he calls another servant, and he sent 200 ewes, and another, and he sent 20 rams, and another, and he sent 30 female camels, and they're young, and another, and he sent 40 cows, and another, and he sent 10 bulls, and another, and he sent 20 female donkeys, and another, and he sent 10 male donkeys. Quite, quite an entourage. Why? Because, according to verse 20, Jacob thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Perhaps. Perhaps. Jacob is still terrified. For you see, the fear that is driving Jacob to his knees before God and before Esau is a fear of of, of the judgment against his sin, which will not be quiet. His guilty conscience is producing cowardice in him. The consequences of his past sins are terrorizing his soul. All the scheming and the praying and the sending of gifts cannot bring him any peace. And nor will it bring any peace to you. For your sin. That eats like cancer in your soul. Terrifying you at the prospects. Of facing judgment. Old Testament teacher Derek Kidner. Notes how Jacob's behavior is typical of our religious efforts. He writes Jacob's sacrificial terms. Unconsciously illustrate. The gulf between man's thinking and God's thinking. The pagan approaches his deity as Jacob now approached Esau. Reckoning that a man's gifts will open doors for him. 
But in the Old Testament, a man's gift is first of all God's gift to him, not his gift to God. As Jacob would soon discover, grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent for guilt. This morning as we see guilty fear, a guilty conscience driving Jacob to his knees, may I warn you not to take sin so lightly? Sin looks so enticing in all of its beautiful forms. And it comes so easy for us, whatever particular thing you're tempted with. We, we easily say it must be good. It must be no big deal. Oh, but who is prepared for the burden of a guilty soul? For guilt's effects are profound. Destroys our confidence turns us into cowards, makes us run when no one's pursuing us, drives us to despair. Like Jacob, guilty fear will drive us to our knees. Oh, but there's also good news here. Coming in the most unexpected way, which brings us to our second point, that God delivers us by defeating us. God delivers us by defeating us. And it's pretty easy to work in two-dimensional things. Add that third dimension and things get really complicated quickly. When you take plane geometry, you can, you might have a little challenge, but you can eventually make sense of all its proofs of dots and lines and angles and figures in the same plane. Oh, but add that vertical dimension. And that's a time a lot of people just drop out of math. It's just too much. Driving's the same way. Left, right, forward, and back can handle that. Put you, put you in an airplane, though, and suddenly do it all upside down and up and down, and it gets very complicated. Plus, you get sick. The vertical dimension... And it's a whole different dimension. It, it complicates things, but it must be dealt with. And so is the life of God's people. You see, our life is not just getting along with each other. Life in this horizontal plane, life on the earth, and we all, ought to all just get along. No, there's more to it than that. We also live in a world of the vertical. God is a player in every relationship. God must be reckoned with. It's not just about you and me. It's about God and you and God and me. And so it is in our text this morning. Jacob is consumed with fear of Esau. Driven by this horizontal relationship with his brother. But he has ignored the reality of the vertical. He has ignored the fact that God is a player in this relationship. Now the text was making a point of that when it really began in verse 1 and 2. When it talked about the angels meeting Jacob as he made camp, God was already present there. Jacob just uh, ignored it. But later in the last part of this chapter, in verses 22 to 32, this truth of God's involvement becomes inescapable. 
Fox explains. From this starting point, everything is subsequently a matter of two camps. That's what that Mahanaim means. Or two levels. The human and the divine. This is the key to understanding the meeting between Jacob and his brother Esau in its entirety. Jacob will have to deal with God before he can resolve the problem with Esau. Jacob will have to deal with God before he can deal with Esau. And so we have this incident of Jacob wrestling with the man whom he eventually realizes is the Lord himself. Now the first thing we need to notice as we talk about this little wrestling match is the fact that here God is Jacob's adversary. God is Jacob's adversary. Now we don't tend to think that way. And neither did Jacob. Oh, Jacob had adversaries. Laban had become his adversary, his uncle. Esau was certainly his adversary. He was trying to kill him. But God, well, God wouldn't hurt anyone, right? Well, God's just there to bless you when you're ready, right? In fact, if you look back at Jacob's prayer, that's exactly the kind of prayer he prays. Thank you, God, for blessing me, and now bless me more. You promised to bless me, God. Bless me and save me and bless me some more. Kind of what kind of prayer it is. Oh, but God's not at Jacob's disposal. God's not at Jacob's disposal for him to put in his order for blessing. God here becomes Jacob's adversary. God attacks Jacob. Dr. Jim Boyce tries to describe it, maybe more vividly than I can. Jacob's all alone in the camp. It's dark. It's night. No flashlight, I suspect. Boyce says, suddenly, out of the darkness, a hand seizes Jacob. What a frightful moment. Who is this? Is this a wandering bandit who might be expecting to murder him for the sake of his clothing and staff and shoe? Was it an assassin sent ahead by the furious Esau to kill him. In a moment, Jacob found himself in hand-to-hand combat, wrestling grimly as if his life depended on the outcome. God attacked him in the night, out of nowhere. Jacob is in a fight for his life. Why? What's the point here? Why does God deal with Jacob in such a rough-and-tumble fashion? We see all Jacob's life he's been striving by his own wits against human opposition. All along he's left one mess after another as he did. But his problem is not with his human adversaries. His problem is that God is his adversary and he's not dealt with God. It's not Esau who Jacob needs to fear. It's God he better fear. And so Jacob wrestles, fights with this human manifestation of the Lord all night long. I've never been a wrestler, but I understand from those who wrestle that a few minutes of wrestling is pretty strenuous. 
Can you imagine? All night long. But Jacob is a strong man. One of the things we perhaps miss about Jacob is his physical strength. You remember the incident when he's trying to impress his wife-to-be, and, and he comes up and the shepherds are all waiting around, waiting until enough people get there to lift that stone off of the, the top of the, the well? Remember that incident? And, and, and there's several around, but we've got to wait for the rest of them until we can move the stone. And what does Jacob do? Walks over and grabs the stone and moves it. He's strong. And he fights, and he fights, and he fights for his life. And so Jacob seems to prevail in this struggle. This is kind of interesting. He seems to prevail. He seems like he's winning this struggle until the Lord touches him on the hip. That's interesting how Jacob can seem to be prevailing as if the outcome is a, is a draw until the Lord touches him and with one touch on the hip, hip renders him permanently crippled. condescension of the Lord. Once Jacob's injured, he doesn't fight so well anymore. He begins to hang on for his life. Like a boxer who's injured and exhausted and afraid of receiving the knockout blow, holds on to his opponent in a clutch, holding on for dear life, trying to last out the round, won't let go, so Jacob, now wounded, won't let go. Finally realizing that this must be the Lord who has overpowered him, Jacob begs for his blessing. Begs for his blessing. As he holds on for dear life. Now what's the point of this wrestling match? People often say, well this is a sign of Jacob persevering in prayer until God agrees to bless him. No, that has things backwards. Arthur Pink explains it better. He says, Jacob was not wrestling with the man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain something from him. And what is that something? It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of of his nothingness. To cause him to see what a poor, helpless, worthless creature he really was. We see that as the Lord pointedly asked Jacob, what is your name? Now, as we've seen repeatedly, biblical names are connected to a person's nature. They are statements of character. They are I, I, more than just tags to identify people. And so Jacob, now defeated by the Lord, has to admit the meaning of his name. Has to admit that he has properly been named deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber, a little sneak. Remember, Esau made that point about Jacob's name back in chapter 27. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. He is a deceiver. He is a little Jacob. What's your name? The Lord said. 
But as Jacob admits who he is before God, rather than being finished off and totally destroyed as he deserves, the strangest thing happens. God blesses him with a new name. He removes his old identity and makes him brand new. You're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're going to be called Israel. Which means God fights. Calvin explains the meaning of this name change. He says, throughout Jacob's entire life, he had been dragging God's blessing out under all circumstances for his own use, under his own steam. He was too self-willed and too proud to let God's blessing be given to him. So God fights will now be his name. This meant first that God chose, because of the patriarch's stubbornness and pride, God chose to fight against him. And secondly, it was a promise that God would now fight for Israel. Oh, do you see what happened here? God defeated Jacob, brought him to an end of himself, permanently disabled him. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But in doing so, God delivered him rather than destroying him. In his grace, God took away his sin, took away his old identity. And through Jacob's weakness, God made him strong. For God would fight for him. Through the mystery of God's severe mercy, Jacob wins by losing. Well, that's how God's grace works. God delivers us by defeating us. Dear people, that's how God's salvation always works. Life comes from death. Victory comes from defeat. This is how God accomplished salvation for us in Christ. Jesus appeared defeated as as God crushed him in punishment for our sin. Through the mystery of grace, God raised him from the dead. So that he gives resurrection life to those who deserve to die. Ian Duguid writes, One has already wrestled with God on our behalf, Jesus Christ. He wrestled with God in the garden, crying out, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He wrestled with God on the cross in that awful moment when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not merely crippled in the hip. He was wounded and flogged and crucified and burdened down with the whole weight of our transgressions. But he clung to God and would not let him go unless he received a blessing, not a blessing for himself, but a blessing for us, his people. God delivered us by defeating our Savior. Oh, but this is not just the pattern of the cross. This is the pattern of the whole Christian life. Life comes through dying. Victory comes in suffering. 
We find our lives when we were finally willing to lose them for Christ's sake. Self-denial produces true fulfillment that the search of fulfillment can never find. As with the Apostle Paul, God often does not remove our thorn in the flesh, does not remove the thing that weakens us. Instead, he uses it to continually remind us of our weakness in order that he might demonstrate in us his mighty strength. Dear folks, this morning we are confronted with that difficult vertical dimension, that Godward reality that even much of modern Christianity disregards these days. You see, God is not a formula to plug into your life to get blessing. No, he is the hound of heaven who will not leave you alone. Who will make himself your adversary in order to bring you to himself. Who will defeat you if necessary in order to save you. But at the same time, he condescends. To make himself accessible to us. In our wrestling with him, though we do not have a chance, he will certainly defeat us with one blow. Yet he calls us, in our weakness, to desperately hold on to him. And as he reduces our pride and our self-sufficiency to nothing, he also blesses us with resurrection life. His own strength in place of our weakness. Dr. Bruce Waltke writes a good summary of this. He says, Jacob's remarkable encounter reminds saints that they too may encounter God in ambiguity, even in apparent hostility, in mystery, cloaked in darkness, and in such humility that he restrains himself from dominating their lives. When they stop wrestling with God and start clinging to him, they discover that he has been there for their good to bless them. Indeed, God delivers us by defeating us. On the path of greatness? Well, it isn't what we would have thought. It's about our path of our guilty fear driving us to our knees in despair. Only to find that God delivers us only by defeating us. Or as one writer put it, it's defeat and victory in one. But this is the path of greatness. I recall vividly, vividly the day that I realized that of all the men I knew in the ministry, I knew of no zero great servants of God who got there on the fast track. You know, we have a normal track for men going into the ministry, you go to college, 
graduate from there, you go to seminary, graduate from there, you get a church, start preaching. I knew of no one who went through that normal procedure and proceeded to have a significant, powerful ministry. No, there was always the dying part. The illnesses endured. The death of a child while in seminary. The broken relationships. The struggles of a career before ministry. The bitter defeats. For you see, only those who walked through some deep waters seem to become truly great. Oh, but we wouldn't be, shouldn't be surprised, should we? For here's Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, heir of all the blessings, on the fast track to greatness. No. He must wrestle with God until he loses. And then he wins. Amen. Oh, Father, you are so mysterious. We cannot comprehend you. And we go to such great lengths to reduce you down to some neat little thing that we can get our minds around some neat little syllogism, some neat little formula, some procedure. If we just go through this procedure, then we somehow have what you've designed for us. And yet, Lord, we can do all of this and never deal with you Never deal with our woeful selfishness and sinfulness, self-centeredness. And Lord, uh, I thank you that you just don't let us go. But in the bitter agony of the wrestling, oh Lord, we don't know for sure how it's going to turn out sometimes. It's only when we realize we're defeated. We can't make you do anything. We can only cling to you in for mercy. It's there, Lord, that we learn what grace is really about. And so I thank you that you bring us to that painful as it is. I thank you that you don't just let us go. I pray that you never would. But that through our understanding and our interaction and our relationship to you, that we would know true greatness then that spills into the horizontal dimension of our relationships 
to one another, to this world. Thank you for your word that teaches us, that shows you to us, though always mysteriously, never all that we wish knew, and yet certainly, and with great grace, now apply it to our hearts. And grow in us this seed of truth. Produce in us what you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.